This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Kuniko Suzuki ran to the stairs as fast as she could, but she had grown old and she had grown heavy. She pictured her grandchildren as she ran, the memory of their adorable little faces pushing her to her limits. She had heard the warnings and she thought she could outrun it, but clearly she was wrong. The tsunami was approaching fast. She wouldn't make it to the stairs, but maybe, just maybe, she could climb the hill. Kuniko scrambled up the steep pile of dirt hoping the water would be low enough to spare her. But nobody can outrun nature itself. Water slammed against her, and she was tossed to and fro within the wave. She prayed for her death to come swiftly. But then, she felt something rough and solid slide beneath her body. Within a second, she could feel the air on her face again. She found herself lying on a roof, it detached from its building, sailing across the wave like a massive, miraculous surfboard. The water carried Kuniko up towards the side of a hill. The roof crashed against the ground, and Kuniko was stunned by the impact. As the wave started to recede, she thought she might be pulled back into the frothing chaos. But luckily, other survivors had seen her, and they came to save her. They grabbed her arms and helped her onto the solid ground, just as the roof was washed away. Kuniko was crying tears of joy. She could see her grandchildren again. The tsunami had claimed her home, but it hadn't claimed her. Welcome to Natural Disasters, the podcast original exploring the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Bill. Every Thursday, we'll follow a cataclysmic event that makes the significant seem insignificant. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. 
At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second episode on the 2011 Tohoku Tsunami, a massive wave that devastated the coast of Japan and became the single most costly natural disaster in recorded history. Last week, we covered the earthquake that caused it, as well as a devastating tsunami that struck Japan in 1960 that set the precedent for how Japan responded to tsunamis in 2011. This week, we'll cover the tsunami's devastating impact, as well as the terrifying nuclear power plant failure that followed in its wake. At 2.46 p.m. on March 11, 2011, Japan was rattled by the most powerful earthquake the country had ever seen. It was so strong, much of the earthquake measuring equipment available was unable to adequately capture its strength on their scales. To make matters worse, this earthquake had unleashed a devastating tsunami wave that was rushing to swallow up the eastern coast of Honshu, the largest island of the nation of Japan. When the tsunami touched land for the first time, it flooded the port town of Kamaishi, destroying most of its infrastructure within a matter of minutes. Most of the people had been able to get to safety, but more than 1,250 people had been too stubborn, too frail, or too slow to escape the devastation. Kamaishi was only the beginning. The waves would soon subsume more and more of Japan's coastal civilization. At 3.20 p.m., the tsunami would touch ground in two more cities. One of these was Ofunato. At the time, Ofunato was a city with a population of over 40,000 people. As a prominent fishing port, the city also sat at the edge of a bay. Unfortunately, this bay is narrow. As the tsunami reached the mouth of the bay, the small inlet only forced the water to focus in on itself and grow taller and taller with each foot it traveled. As the wave built, it reached a massive and terrifying height. When it finally crashed against Ofunato, it stood nearly 80 feet tall. This behemoth of a wave consumed nearly everything in its wake. It damaged every building in the city and outright demolished nearly a third of all homes. The sea's assault against the land stretched nearly two miles inland, an astonishing distance for a tsunami to travel. When the wave receded, it had also taken at least 300 people with it. And at the same time, just over 40 miles away, the town of Minami Sanriku was struck by the vicious waves. The town had approximately 17,000 people living there before the tsunami. Once the waves came, 558 of those people would be swallowed by the sea. Only a few minutes later, the tsunami would also devastate the city of Rikuzen-Takata. Prior to the tsunami, Rikuzen-Takata was a thriving coastal town with a population of over 23,000 people 
and a peaceful lake located within its city limits. When the Pacific crashed against the town, the water rose 40 feet high and snatched up 80% of Rikuzen-Takata's buildings. It also managed to catch over 2,300 people in its grasp and dragged them out to a deep, dark grave. And yet, even after all this destruction, the tsunami wasn't close to being over. News of the damage continued to spread throughout the nation, but still, despite all the evidence to the contrary, some people thought they might be safe, especially some people in Kesinuma. Kesinuma is one of the largest cities in the region, and it had a population of 73,000 at the time of the tsunami. It was an economic center for the island, known for its thriving fishing industry. It had a large harbor with many boats of all sizes. But that afternoon, the tsunami turned the fishing fleet that had given Kesinuma life into a harbinger of the city's death. Yasuo Kishi, a retired fisherman, took out his mobile phone to record the Okawa River. He was a mile upstream from Kesinuma Bay, and the air was deathly silent. The Okawa River was peaceful, as if it were a normal day. Yasuo stood filming on the lip of a levee that stood nearly 30 feet tall. The levees had been built on both banks of the Okawa, specifically to contain the river if a tsunami should occur. Because of this, Yasuo felt safe. The last tsunami he remembered reaching Keisunuma was after the Chilean earthquake back in 1960. That tsunami had only raised the river levels by 10 feet, far below what would be required for the water to breach the levee. He was excited to capture the coming waves on video. The simple sight of a river flowing upstream would be entertaining enough to rewatch many times over. Yasuo smiled as he heard a slight rumbling in the distance. He turned his camera downriver to see water coming towards him. It looked as if a frothing brown stack of energy was rolling across the top of the river, which still stood peacefully below. Just as Yasuo had suspected, this tsunami only looked about three or four feet tall. He would be perfectly safe from his vantage point. Yet Yasuo was unaware that this was only just the beginning. The bulk of the tsunami was hitting Keisunuma port less than a mile away. The massive waves that had breached the port stood over three stories tall. More than 40 firemen, who had scrambled to close the floodgates, had been violently ripped from the concrete walls by the churning waters. Dock workers who attempted to secure their ships were snatched up as they climbed the hillsides. And the expansive shipping fleet itself had been raised by the wave, hundreds of tons of iron, wood, and steel thrust into the air, only to be brought crashing down against the buildings, bridges, and people of Kesinuma. As the ships and freighters were dashed upon the stone and concrete, their hulls were punctured and torn to bits. The millions of gallons worth of gasoline they held within their fuel tanks spilled out into the water and mixed in with the tsunami itself. The waves tore through Kesinuma like an outraged demon. As the water crawled across the land, it began to race up the Okawa River straight towards Yasuo Kishi, who was unaware of the fast approaching danger.
we'll find out what happens when the tsunami reveals itself to Yasuo after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. The Tohoku tsunami that occurred on March 11th, 2011, had made its way all across the coastline of Honshu, the main island of Japan. It had devastated and decimated several cities, and its ravenous appetite for destruction had yet to be sated. At 3.26 p.m., the tsunami had set its sights on Keisinuma, the largest city in the region and a thriving fishing port. The tsunami had picked up and destroyed Kasinuma's entire fishing fleet and was quickly making its way up the Okawa River, where Yasuo Kishi stood atop the levee, filming, thinking he was safe. He gasped as the water began running upstream, almost as if a second river had begun flowing on top of the first. As the wave approached, the water in the river basin rose, Yasuo watched as the water lifted small pleasure boats from their moors, but things soon got a little more dangerous. As the wave took up the boats, it crashed them together. Their hulls hit with a sickening crunch. The water tore each boat from its dock, carrying them further upstream at a rapid pace. Yasuo's eyebrows raised. The wave seemed to be moving much faster than he had anticipated. But he was thankful. That only made the tsunami more interesting to film. As the water kept coming, the river filled higher and higher. The frothing white head of the wave had now turned a gross brown. Debris was carried upon the river's back, almost as if the water had been replaced with a steady stream of trash. Yasuo heard a siren. He turned to see a fire truck driving past, its megaphone blaring a warning. It was time to evacuate, get to high ground as soon as possible. Yasuo shrugged. The tsunami was still 10 feet below the top of the levees. He was sure it would be safe, so he kept filming. On the river, the debris began to turn into full-sized boats. Fishing vessels carried from the ports all the way to Yasuo. He grew slightly more concerned when he saw these ships approaching him on the waves. He looked at the water height again and noticed it was only five feet below the top of the levee. Perhaps he should evacuate after all. Without putting away his phone, Yasuo calmly walked to his bicycle only a few feet away. He hopped aboard its seat, then looked back. The water had begun to flow over the top of the levee. The tsunami had arrived. Yasuo pedaled as quickly as he could. He told himself he would be fine. Only a little bit of water had made it over the wall after all. There was a nearby high school with an outdoor staircase. He could climb at least four stories up, and looking into the distance, he saw that at least a hundred people had already had the same idea. He pushed himself to pedal faster, 
But soon the sound of his wheel on the ground turned into the slosh of a puddle. He turned around to see that the levee had practically burst. A veritable deluge of water poured over its edge and pursued him through the streets. He wasn't going to make it to the high school. He looked around for something, anything that could save him. Luckily, a row of trees stood next to him. Most weren't very tall, but they were better than nothing. He hopped off his bike, letting it clatter to the ground. His shoes soaked through as he sprinted toward the tree. When he reached the tree, he clung to its bark and scrambled up the branches as quickly as he could. He managed to get 20 feet into the air, but the tree violently shook as the water buffeted the trunk. Flecks of water splashed up, soaking Yasuo as he clung to the branches for dear life. He looked to the nearby school to see the playground equipment consumed by a torrent of trash and debris. Swing sets and slides were dashed to pieces, adding to the tide of wreckage violently tearing through the neighborhood. Yasuo could hear the people on top of the school wailing with grief. He knew many of them could see their houses collapse as they were swallowed by the tsunami. He couldn't care about his own house at the moment. He only cared about holding on. He prayed that the water wouldn't rise high enough to snatch him from his perch. At least 10 minutes passed before the water began to calm. The scene around him was pure destruction. 10 feet of dirty water stood still within the town it had consumed. Yasuo breathed a sigh of relief. He would only need to wait for the water to recede before he could climb down from the tree and retreat to higher ground. But as he sat in the branches, thankful for his life, he saw something strange in the distance. A pillar of black smoke began to rise on the horizon. It started as a simple pyre, but Yasuo watched in terror as the smoke began to grow into a billowing cloud. Then, beneath the smoke, he could see the flames. They burned bright red and orange, the fire growing as tall as the tsunami itself. The port should still be sunken beneath the waves. How could it be burning? He didn't know that the gasoline that the tsunami had swallowed had been belched forth from beneath the calming waves. As the water stilled, the fuel and the water began to separate. Gasoline is much less dense than water, so it rose to the surface exposed to open air. A latent spark set the fuel ablaze. Yasuo would ultimately survive the tsunami, but he would watch for hours stranded in the water as an ungodly pillar of flames consumed the part of the port that had not fallen to the waves. The gasoline fires in Kasinuma would continue to burn for four days straight. The tsunami had risen nearly 50 feet high, destroying most of the city, and the fires it left behind would finish the job. Ultimately, the ocean and its flames claimed the lives of thousands of people. With this first wave, the Pacific Ocean had lashed out against Japan, destroying almost every town, city, and roadway in its path. All in all, the tsunami's first bite swallowed up over 200 square miles worth of land up and down the coast. 
However, there were some small areas where the seawalls had been tall enough to stop the tsunami in its tracks. One such location was the Fukushima Daiichi power plant in the city of Okuma. Fukushima Daiichi was a nuclear power plant with six separate reactors, each of which provided massive amounts of energy for the country. In fact, much of the electricity generated there helped power Tokyo, a city 150 miles south of the plant. Because the power plant was located on the coast, the company had built a protective seawall that stood nearly 20 feet tall. When the earthquake hit that day, the plant's automatic safety mechanisms immediately shut down nuclear reactors 1, 2, and 3. Reactors 4, 5, and 6 had already been powered down for maintenance weeks before. When functioning properly, these reactors generate electricity through the process of nuclear fission. This occurs when specific radioactive elements are grouped together and their atoms begin to break apart, releasing enormous amounts of heat in the process. In nuclear reactors, these radioactive elements are placed inside pressurized containers, which are then filled with water. The heat created by the nuclear fission turns that water into steam, which powers through various pipes, eventually reaching the turbines. The steam pressure spins the turbine, which in turn creates electricity. When the steam cools down, it condenses back into water. That water is pumped back into the nuclear reactor to function as a coolant. And once the nuclear fission restarts, it once again turns into steam. In order to turn a nuclear reactor off and slow down the process of nuclear fission, the power cores must be pulled apart from each other and water must continue to be pumped into the reactor to carry the heat away. If water is not pumped into the reactor, the reactor can overheat, causing the nuclear fission to continue no matter how far apart the power cores are. When a nuclear reactor is allowed to overheat, things can get extremely dangerous. Along with heat, nuclear fission often produces hydrogen, which is extremely combustible. As the reactors fill with hydrogen, their internal heat and pressure can build to absurd levels. Eventually, the reactor will explode. An exploding reactor can damage the emergency response systems of neighboring reactors, leading to more explosions. This can cast irradiated material into the air, damaging everything that it touches. Irradiated materials can kill off plants, animals, and sea life. People exposed to radiation can develop cancerous mutations and radiation sickness, a deadly, painful, and incurable disease. It often takes decades for radiation to be neutralized and become harmless. As such, irradiated areas often have to be quarantined to keep people from being exposed to danger. Unfortunately, animals don't understand quarantine zones, so they often wander into irradiated areas without realizing it. This becomes especially risky when sea life is involved. Many fish travel across long distances over short periods of time. If a fish swims into an irradiated portion of the ocean, they can re-emerge, bringing radiation with them. Even if only a small portion of the ocean is irradiated, people looking to eat fish anywhere near that region must be especially careful. For a nation like Japan, whose diet consists mostly of seafood, 
a coastal nuclear disaster can have a drastic effect on their way of life. And so when the earthquake hit on March 11th and the Fukushima Daiichi power plant came out relatively unscathed, engineers and government officials were optimistic. The plant had been built to withstand powerful earthquakes and the emergency measures had functioned exactly as they were intended to. But the earthquake did have one massive negative effect. It had snapped power lines, disconnecting the plant from all external sources of power. The plant had to rely on backup diesel generators that were located underground. The generators were strong enough to power the water pumps and steam release valves, allowing engineers to cool down the reactors and maintain safe internal temperatures for the foreseeable future. Ideally, these reactors would cool down to the point where the radioactive elements could be safely removed and the reactors could be inspected for damage. Then, at 3.27 p.m., exactly one minute after the first tsunami tore through Keisinuma port, that same tsunami reached the city of Okuma. While much of Okuma was raised by the waves, the power plant itself remained safe behind its 20-foot-tall seawalls. And for the citizens of the town, this was all for the best. Even though their houses had fallen, they could still rebuild. But if the nuclear power plant had fallen, they might never have been able to rebuild at all. As the engineers breathed a sigh of relief, they turned their focus to the problem still at hand. While the plant had been largely undamaged by the earthquake, Reactor 1 had begun to behave strangely. Even with the steam release valve and the water pumps operating, Reactor 1 was getting dangerously hot. It seemed stable, but the workers needed to ensure it remained that way. Otherwise, things could get very bad very quickly. Little did they know the tsunami still wasn't finished. It was coming back to the power plant, and it was going to strike with a vengeance. We'll watch the nuclear power plant melt down after this. Now, back to the story. At 3.27 p.m. on March 11, 2011, the Fukushima Daiichi power plant narrowly avoided disaster when their 20-foot-tall seawall protected them from a devastating tsunami. Unfortunately, the second wave would not be so kind. At 3.46 p.m., a second tsunami crashed against Okuma's shores. This wave stood 46 feet tall, more than twice the height of the power plant's protective seawall. Like an elephant stepping over an anthill, the tsunami was completely unfazed. Millions of gallons of seawater came gushing in. The nuclear reactors themselves were sealed and were unaffected by the waves. However, as the water flooded the entire plant, the diesel generators supplying the backup power were completely submerged in water. The generators broke down and the reserve fuel tanks were washed away. The lights went out, the water pumps shut down. The temperature inside the reactors began to rise to dangerous levels. The employees at the power plant and the Japanese government went on high alert. They knew that if they couldn't act quickly to restore the power, they would have a nuclear disaster as horrific as Chernobyl on their hands. 
Meanwhile, the rising temperature within Reactor 1 began to boil the water that was left inside. As it boiled, it turned to steam, increasing the pressure inside the reactors exponentially. By 6 p.m., so much water had boiled within Reactor 1, the top halves of the nuclear fuel rods inside had become exposed to open air. With the rods exposed, the heat increased even more rapidly. To make matters worse, the interaction of the zirconium on the fuel rods with the steam in the reactor chamber caused a chemical reaction, stripping the hydrogen from the water vapor. That free-flowing hydrogen was extremely dangerous, as hydrogen is prone to igniting. Only 18 minutes later, at 6.18 p.m., employees managed to get the electricity running again. This allowed them to turn on the coolant pumps, but the danger still remained. The added water couldn't cool down the steam enough to turn it back into water, and with the fuel rod still exposed, the pumps could do little to help the reactor cool down. Workers at the plant warned the government that a nuclear explosion was a real possibility. By 7.02 p.m., the Prime Minister declared a preemptive state of nuclear emergency, advising all people living within proximity of the plant to be prepared to evacuate should things get worse. By 7.30, things had already gotten worse. The nuclear fuel rods had heated the reactor to 2,800 degrees Celsius, and the extreme heat caused all the water to boil into steam. The heat even melted the nuclear fuel rods, doubling the pressure within the reactor. As the workers watched the pressure rise, they knew that the likelihood of a nuclear explosion was rising as well. Older employees volunteered to relieve the younger employees of their posts. Because the effects of radiation poisoning tend to only appear over a long period of time, the older employees felt they had less to lose if they were exposed to the radiation. But if the reactor did explode, the effects could be immediately deadly for anyone nearby. By 9 p.m., the Japanese government issued an evacuation warning. All people within two miles of the plant were advised to flee as soon as they possibly could. Unfortunately, the tsunami had damaged roads, making evacuation difficult. As the night continued, the pressure within Reactor 1 built even higher. Nuclear experts spent hours arguing about what they should do to avoid disaster. They soon realized their only option was to pierce the nuclear chamber itself to let the steam out, rather than wait for it to build to an explosion. While piercing the chamber would allow radiation to seep out and spread across the plant, this was a preferable alternative to a full-blown Chernobyl-style explosion. At 5.30 a.m. on March 12th, the workers got the official governmental approval to vent the radioactive steam. Carefully and slowly, they opened the reactor. And the steam came pouring out. As it filled the plant, the workers suffered their first exposure to radiation. They only hoped they could find some way to prevent things from getting worse. At 6.50 a.m., they managed to get more emergency power working by fixing some of the damaged generators. 
They used this extra power to pump water directly into the now-vented reactor in an attempt to cool down the rods. Unfortunately, because the fuel rods had already melted, the added water simply accelerated the production of hydrogen within the reactor. The temperature did decrease, but the danger only increased. Both reactors two and three followed in the footsteps of reactor one. Pressure built within them, and as the risk of explosion climbed, the government expanded the evacuation zone from two miles to six miles. Expanding the evacuation zone was a wise move. As the workers vented the steam from Reactor 1, they had failed to notice a massive flaw in their process. Much of the steam was meant to flow through an air duct directly to the outdoors. However, the limited electricity powering the fans resulted in a current that was too weak to properly control the direction of the air. Instead of flowing outdoors, much of the steam flowed back down the vents and onto the service floor. The hydrogen that had built up within the reactor then collided with the oxygen in the steam. The mixture of these elements resulted in a massive explosion. At 3.36 p.m., a blast tore through the roof of the power plant, sending radioactive debris flying in every direction. Four employees who had been working to cool down the reactors were bombarded with bits of concrete. All four were seriously injured and rushed to a hospital, but luckily no one died. In a desperate attempt to prevent a full nuclear meltdown, the power company began pumping seawater directly into the blown-out building. And the government expanded the radius of the evacuation zone to 12.4 miles. Things were only going to get worse from there. As the workers scrambled to deal with the explosion of Reactor 1, their worst fears came to pass. Reactor 3 began to melt down too. Water in the reactor had begun to boil, leaving the fuel rods exposed to open air, just like in Reactor 1. In an attempt to avert further disaster, the workers vented Reactor 3. They also poured boric acid into the reactor's containment vessel to slow down the nuclear processes happening within the core. Yet all their efforts were for naught. Over the next day, the steam continued to build. And at 11.01 a.m. on March 14th, Reactor 3 detonated. The explosion collapsed the building and damaged the pumps that had stabilized Reactor 2. Once again, workers scrambled to prevent their last reactor from detonating. But they didn't expect Reactor 3 to explode a second time. This second detonation damaged the coolant system of Reactor 2 beyond repair. At 8 p.m. on Tuesday, March 15th, Reactor 2 went into full-blown meltdown and an explosion tore through its containment shields. After only five days, all three nuclear reactors at the Fukushima Daiichi power plant had exploded. Radiation seeped out from the ruins, spreading into the air, the ground, and the sea. Fukushima would never be the same again. The tsunami had devastated the entire eastern coast of Honshu, Japan, and left a horrific, near-permanent radioactive scar on its land. People searched the wreckage for months, looking for the missing and the dead. They tried desperately to find their loved ones, 
only to discover that many of them had perished beneath the waves. In total, nearly 20,000 people were killed by the tsunami or the poor conditions that followed in its wake. To this day, 2,500 people are still missing and presumed dead. Almost 500,000 people lost their homes in the disaster. As of 2018, 75,000 of them were still living in temporary government housing. To this day, the Fukushima Daiichi power plant is a quarantine zone where no person can enter. Much of the evacuation area has been reopened to the public, but fish caught near the coast must all be tested for radiation before being eaten. As of 2019, only one person near Fukushima has died from radiation poisoning. Unfortunately, that number may rise as the workers present during the meltdown could see symptoms develop in the years to come. In total, the tsunami also destroyed $360 billion worth of homes, buildings, roadways, infrastructure, and personal property. With such a drastic financial cost, the 2011 Tohoku tsunami has gone down in history as the single most financially destructive disaster in human history. With so much land, homes, and lives lost, the Tohoku tsunami will never be forgotten. It will remain a perpetual reminder of what can happen when the Pacific Ocean comes alive. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Maggie Admire, Travis Clark, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Giles Hofseth and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. Bill Thomas.